I had Tim here with a quick note before the podcast. Due to rights reasons, the songs have been shortened for this podcast. Every song is taken from the Bangles album Different Light. All tracks are written by the Bangles unless otherwise stated. The Bangles at the time of this album were Susanna Hoffs, Vicky Peterson, Mickey Steele and Debbie Peterson. Manic Monday was written by Prince. Walk Like an Egyptian by Liam Sternberg. If She Knew What She Wants by Jules Shear and September Girls by Alex Chilton. Walking Down Your Street is also credited to Louis Gutierrez and David Kahn. Different Light was released on the 2nd of January 1986 on Columbia. Anyway, now that's out of the way, enjoy the podcast. Tim's Listening Party was a lockdown sensation. Unfortunately, it was on Twitter, which you can't listen to. But Absolute Radio has the solution. Tim Burgess explores seminal albums alongside the artists who brought them to life. Absolute Radio presents Tim's Listening Party with Tim Burgess. Hiya, welcome to another episode of Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. It's Tim Burgess here, excited to be sitting down with another musician to play back a classic album together. I appreciate you getting involved on Twitter. It's been great over the last few episodes. Please keep those messages coming in using the hashtag Tim's Twitter Listening Party. This episode, I'm joined by the guitarist and lead vocalist of one of the most iconic bands of the 80s, The Bangles, a pioneering all-female rock band providing some of the most recognisable hits of their era. The Bangles represent a glorious sweet spot between rock and pop. A guitarist, singer, songwriter, and also an actress, and now a novelist, is Susanna Hoffs. I'm delighted to be joined by Susanna Hoffs. We're going to be talking about the 1986 album Different Light. I mean, number ones all over the world and a hugely successful album. I guess... You know, before we start going into detail about the songs and stuff like that, I mean, what was the lay of the land? I know about the Paisley Underground, right. and, and we'll talk about that hopefully a little bit later, but what was the lay of the land before going in to make this second album? Well, the whole journey of the Bangles has been so festive to revisit, to be honest with you, because there was always a DIY spirit in me. Everything that I ever chose to do in my life um, was fueled by just this desperate passion to do it and to not wait for permission. I recognize now early on, you know, I just like, I wanted to start a band. So I plastered my flyers all over LA because there was no internet. We didn't have laptops. We didn't have cell phones. There was no way. It was like very old school. And so the Bengals, I met them through an ad that I put in the paper that it was a bit of a circuitous thing because it was like their roommate who had placed the ad, but they lived together with their ex-bandmate. And um, somehow, yeah. the, magically, Vicky and I were united on this phone call because the, the roommate who had placed her ad was not available or was not there. And Vicky and I just immediately had this like electric connection with each other. We were obsessed with music of the 60s. We grew up in the 60s as little girls and music similarly for her was like it cast a kind of magical spell like i we were just obsessed with with the music of the Fantastic. 60s and even though it was the very beginning of the 80s vicky and her sister debbie and i were all very hell-bent on dragging our love of 60s harmonies jangly guitars i already had a rickenbacker because you know my favorite guitar players and I loved that sound. The birds had that sound. The Beatles had that Such sound. Such good taste. It was. It was like a. <laughs> it was like trance-inducing. The the the, the yeah. shimmer of of a, yeah. of a twelve-string Rickenbacker. So we literally played one song in the garage, which was where cars were meant to be parked. But in LA, everybody <laughs> puts a door on the garage part, and and I was living in the garage. It was like my cool flat you know, back home from having graduated from UC Berkeley. So they came to my cool garage flat. <laughs> it wasn't very cool, to be honest. It was really rough around the no, edge. It's a rehearsal it, room, it, it rehearsal be... room and, and, uh, and, and a place to hang out. Yeah, and I, Sounds ha- great. and I had my Debbie Harry standee wearing a pink dress that I guess my brother had nicked <laughs> or, for, or found <laughs> somehow from the record store. It was propped there. So I was always like eyeing Debbie Harry. And the Peterson sisters suggested we try playing White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane as our first to to test the waters. That song always sounded very complex to me because it has a kind of half step thing. It's like the chord progression. 
And yet it just yeah. repeats over and over again. So I thought, oh, <laughs> this sounds so complicated and yet it's so easy. And we played that song one time through and it was like, oh, wow, we sound like a band. So it just went from there. It was that fast. Fantastic first choice of, uh, of a song. Yeah. So for the different light album, we were at Sunset Sound Factory, which was the, the little sister studio of the iconic Sunset Sound on Sunset yeah. Boulevard. I know yeah, it. Yeah, you know it. And we ended up yeah, recording yeah, yeah, there yeah. too. And there was a husband and wife engineering team who that had worked with Prince and done a lot of recording in Minnesota, where his studio was. And it was David and Peggy Leonard. And David Leonard was engineering the Bangles record. And Peggy was, you know, west on Sunset at the big Sunset Sound working mm-hmm. with Prince. So one of the wonderful memories of that record was when I got the call that Prince wanted me to come to Sunset Sound, the big studio, the, mo- the mother studio, the mothership, and pick up a song. <laughs> I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know, you know, what to expect. I drove in my beat up Toyota with the ripped upholstery across, not far from where we were. <laughs> and I was trying to sort of steal myself. But what is this going to feel like walking in and getting this from Prince? He was singing or recording at that very moment that I got there. But the cassette, which I still have, the actual one, is the one I picked up and then I drove across town. And then, of course, you know, we all hovered around a cassette player. It's like an anachronistic thing now. And (laughs) there was Manic Monday. There was the riff. Wow. And there it was. And so it was pretty wonderful. And, you know, Prince used to just show up at our gigs and strut onto the stage already shredding like a a superhero it was a supernatural sound that he i don't know where he channeled it from i mean you saw him on the rock and roll hall of fame tom petty waited to have him come out at the very end when they're playing while my guitar gently weeps and i've never heard a solo like that but that's what he would do that's what he did at our shows completely dedicated Yeah. yeah completely dedicated Here's the first song from Different Light, Manic Monday. from the Bangles that's Manic Monday you're listening to Absolute Radio it's Tim Burgess here having a listening party with Susanna Hoffs going through the Bangles second album released in 1986 Different Light so one day you were just like you know you didn't have a song by Prince no and then the next day you then the, the next, next day, day you did the, I mean <laughs> the next day we did and the mysterious thing is on the very cassette that I still have there was a song called Jealous Girl Right. But I know we listened to it at the time, but here's the really mysterious thing. I have this singular actual cassette. I went to uh, my friend's studio and I said, I really want to very carefully find Jealous Girl again. We listened through the whole tape and I know that I heard it. I really should try to track down wherever that demo is because that was just the cassette that he made for me, but it must exist somewhere in his great archive because I know he there is a massive archive of his work so that is on my to-do list I'm desperate to revisit that song because he had offered up two songs Manic Monday and Jealous Girl God, I, know. I, mean, I really look forward to that. I mean, things do have, have a habit of going missing, sadly. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to hearing yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but the making of Manic Monday was a really special time in my life. And we all were instantly smitten with Manic Monday. It was so... Yeah. So right for the bangles. And we already had written a bunch of songs, so it was like, you know, it seemed to make sense to just add Manic Monday to the batch of songs that we've been writing and playing. So I suppose I should go into uh, track two. Yes. Um, uh, well, I guess it's the title track of the album. Yeah. Uh, in, in a different light. I mean, was this something that you had, you know, prior to Manic Monday? And Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Manic Monday yeah. was sort of like a special gift that showed up partway through the recording. 
in a partway yeah, through it. Interesting. In a different light. So I did a lot of co-writing with Vicky Peterson, the other guitarist, the lead guitarist yeah. in the Bangles, and I played yeah. rhythm with the occasional lead. So in a different <laughs> light was yeah was one of the many co-writes that I had done with Vicky and. We had a pretty good practice of getting together, sitting on the floor with acoustic guitars, and and writing together. We were we were kind of a writing team. Was this in your garage?、Um, uh, this would have been possibly yes. I did. A, we did. <laughs> well, we did a, lo- a lot of the hero takes the fall from the first album. I vividly remember being in the garage, the garage,、right. the garage. I like the way <laughs> you say it. The、yeah. garage. It's okay, so、good. much cooler. Garage bands. It's、yeah. so much cooler. <laughs> All the British ways of saying things are cooler. But like, I remember when we did the tube. The Bangles played the tube. That was when the Different Light yeah, yeah, record yeah. was out, and we did the tube. And the great presenter there, what was his name? He was so cool. Paul, Paulie Yates and Jules Holland. Jules Holland, yeah, yeah. Paulie Yates and yeah, Jules yeah, Holland. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and actually, Bob Geldof and Paulie Yates. I think we remembered seeing the train. We were on the same train, maybe up from London when we did、wow. the tube. Speaking of, that was such a time performing in the UK with the Different Light album was a really special time for me and the band. I mean, we loved being there as Beatlemaniacs and British Invasion yeah,、like、a, children. You know, the first album was was pretty big, right? But then this was like worldwide. Yeah. You know, no messing about. It was like、yeah. just everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And、uh, so that was a great thing. I remember so vividly. The kids just right up at the front of the stage, staring up and knowing that we were on the telly, you know, because it was broadcast. <laughs> and then I think Chrissy Hind watched it. Somebody said that, and I was like, "Oh my god!" You know, like it was those moments. Then, so cool. Because、yeah. we were such Anglophiles, you know, being kids of the British invasion in LA, it、yeah. really was it particularly special in those early gigs, playing Dingwalls and the Marquee. You know, like the Stones、yeah. that played the Marquee. That was so cool、yeah. for us. And Dingwalls was、yeah. so, so like our version of the Cavern Club. You know, it's like I remember it was very small. I think, but maybe I have it wrong. It's the same for me. I mean, I was like obsessed with Manchester music, but after that, it was all about Californian music. Oh、you know? wow, cool. Um, so I was really into the Paisley Underground. I used to talk to journalists when you know when I first went to America and. They would ask what I was influenced by, and it was always like you know the Paisley Underground. <laughs> yeah.、Um, I don't know how big it was in America because, you know, I'm sure that people just looked at me kind of blankly. Was it a big scene? No, it was a very small scene. It's just that, how did I know about it? Well, because you're cool. You're so cool. <laughs> oh、right. no, no, you are.、Okay. No, I'm just saying it was. It was a very small scene, very specific. What happened was、yeah. we suddenly realized that as we were playing the club circuit, very few people coming to see us, kind of outskirts of L.A. We started to play the Cafe de Grand in Hollywood, yeah, and we started to realize that the Dream Syndicate were sort of like the Velvet Underground-ish inspired version of a Paisley、yeah. Underground band, and then there was the Three O'clock, which was more like、um, Baroque, very melodic.、Yeah. And then there was、yeah. the Bangles, who were like, as Rodney Bingenheimer, the DJ, famously said,、yeah. the mamas and <laughs> the mamas and the mamas, like the mamas and papas, like <laughs> harmonies, and California yeah,、dreaming. California dreaming, and jangly、yeah. uh, Rickenbackers and twelve strings and yeah, yeah, such. Yeah, yeah. So we each had our own niche within the Paisley Underground, but. I think the Paisley Underground is more known now than it was then. We were very small,、yeah. little contingent within the LA music scene because that you had like hair metal bands beginning, you had power pop, because we were、yeah. just after like the knack, you know that、yeah. all of that. We were、yeah. a little post new wave, I think. If we're gonna get real, yeah, yeah, you know, labelly、yeah. about yeah, it, yeah, yeah, real specific, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to find your pocket, don't you?、Yeah. And, and and especially in LA, it's like really, you know, it's really important to find your people. But it was fun to be in that club. You know, it was fun to be part of a movement. You could say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my introduction was Rain Parade. Oh、um, yeah, of course, Rain Parade, which was an offshoot, and then Mazzy Star, because I grew up with David Roback. Who started the Rain Parade、wow. with his brother Stephen yeah, and with、yeah. Matt Pucci and Will Glenn was in it and he had been my brother's roommate at Yale. So David and I grew、yeah. up 
our whole childhood were together, but then when we both went off to uni, he ended up transferring to UC Berkeley, which was a real hotbed of music and, you know, late 70s vibes. And that's when David and I began a romance, but we also started, became a duo called The Unconscious. Fantastic. Only we knew wow. that we were a duo. It wasn't publicly known wow. and we never played a single gig, but we called ourselves The Unconscious. And so I finally was able to um, get onto streaming. I'll keep it with mine, my cover of Nico's cover from yes. from Chelsea yes. Girl. Yeah. And yeah, Dylan wrote, Dylan wrote, I'll keep it with yeah. mine. Exactly. Yeah, 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 but I yeah, knew it. Yeah. Via the Velvet Underground, via John Cale's, yeah. like connecting yeah, yeah, all yeah. John these dots, production. Right? Yeah, yeah. What I was doing with David in the late 70s up in, in Berkeley, which is a very vibrant college town with like amazing bookstores. I met, uh, we'd go to the book signings, William S. Burroughs, Patti Smith's friend. I had nothing but a dollar bill for him to sign. So he just, he signed it and said, ah, defacing U.S. currency. As he yeah, signed he it, he that. loved it. Anyway, that was wow. a very, um, that was like this sort of think tank incubating of the future music journey that I would take was started at Berkeley. And then as soon, soon as it was 1980 and I was in LA and then of course put the ads out, advertise myself. And then once it was 1981, the bangles, we were, we were called the bangs. We were still yes. called the bangs because yeah. we really liked that because we thought of bangs as like you've got a fringe, but we liked that it sort of had a punch and a pop to it. But then, of course, there was another band, it turns out, a, Jer a New Jersey boy band called The Bangs. So we were forced in the 11th hour when our EP was about to come out um, that Craig Leon produced, which was he was wonderful oh, to great. work with. I mean, he worked with the Ramones, yeah. I think. Um, and the fall. And the fall. Craig yeah. Leon is yeah. so good. He was so delightful in the studio, too. I remember one thing that he once said, play the last strum, the last chord of this with a quarter instead of a pick. <laughs> How cool is that? I should do that again, using a quarter as a pick. But yeah, I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place. But yeah, that's that was a really fertile time creatively the the berkeley years with david and then and then yeah, all the cool la la scene growing finding each other the other bands we were just talking about paisley underground so cool i'm gonna try and uh, get this back on track yes please <laughs> <laughs> with um the second track from different light this is in a different light In a different light on Tim's listening party. So, Susanna, I've got a note here. It's a song, Walking Down Your Street. Yeah. Is it true Little Richard was in the video for this? It was, in fact, true. It was absolutely true. And it was magnificent. <laughs> I remember Little Richard living in a hotel on Sunset Strip. I think it was the Hyatt Hotel. Oh, wow. And we used to stay there all the time. And it wouldn't be kind of like, a, you know, extraordinary if you see him. You know? Yeah. We call that Hyatt the Riot House. Is that, do you remember? The Riot House, yeah, that's right. The yeah, Riot yeah, yeah. House, because it was known for the wildness of the guests and the parties. Did you have sightings in the elevator of Little Richard? Yes, yeah, so I saw it a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, and he was just like, I mean, he was just taking it all in, really, you know. And But I, I think he had a whole floor. That's, oh, I mean, that was the story. Oh, wow. Which, which, you know, makes great sense for rock and roll legend. Absolutely. Know? I remember one caveat. Um, he was totally game to do our video. It was, it was a great sort of stamp of approval that Little Richard was... Uh, yeah. But he did have his sights set on a sparkly jacket like a sparkly sports <laughs> coat that he had spied somewhere on hollywood boulevard and so of course we're like of course we'll buy you the jacket so you can keep it it's your prop and it was it felt really good to do that and to give him that little gift um yeah. that was like a little dream that he had well i love this jacket to wear in the video so we made that happen it, 
And he was just so delightful to work with. How did it come about? I mean, how did uh, someone have the idea? I'm trying to remember. Well, we knew we wanted to have a special guest so that the bangles could be like an up and coming, the whole conceit of the video that was directed by the wonderful Gary Weiss, who had done SNL mm -hmm. shorts and he had done um, yeah. the Ruddles movie. Have you ever seen the Ruddles oh, movie? Yes, it's an I, iconic of, of movie. Course. It's so, genius. So yeah. It's complete genius. So we knew that he understood the music world and, and even satire of the music world. So maybe it was Gary who had the thought to invite uh, Little Richard to be a guest star in our video. Let's take a listen. Yeah. This is Walking Down Your Street on Absolute Radio. Third track from Different Light, Walking Down Your Street. Track number four. Um, yep, I see it. So, it's a big one. Yeah, it's, it's written, written down your phone. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you play this album over and over again at home, uh, well, uh, not, like all other musicians. They never listen to their I records. I never listen but, to mine. Um, so I, I mean, you're looking now what track four is. Walk Like an Egyptian, your first number one in America. Yeah. I want to know, firstly, the importance of MTV at the time. Um, Massive. You know, I mean, the video was fun. I, I mean, I remember growing up in a very small town outside of Manchester and TVs were introduced into pubs, you know. Ah. And that video was on, every, you know, it was like you had to pay for it. You had to put money in. Oh, you're you know? kidding. So like, then, like a ju yeah, jukebox. Then, uh, like a, like a, a, a video jukebox. Yeah. And, you know, that song, I'm telling you. Yeah. Every Friday night. <laughs> wow. It was a big one. Well, that song was sort of left a left field accident in a certain way. I was up at Columbia Records and I was just hanging out with David Kahn, who was our producer on the album. And he yeah. was just looking through a bunch of things that, that were swirling around. And he had somehow stumbled upon this cassette, because that's what everything was back then, of a woman named Marty Jones singing this song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Turns out it had been covered by other people, but it was very obscure. And he plays yeah. this song for me and I, and I loved it. It almost had a kind of bossa nova, I'm, you know, it probably has nothing to do with bossa nova, but for me, it had this kind of existentialist, beatnik vibe. The way that she sang it, it was very kind of deadpan cool. And it was like, yeah. walk like an Egyptian. Very beatnik <laughs> and very unusual. It wasn't your classic love song. There was no heartbreak no. in it. I later came to get to know Liam Sternberg, who grew up with Chrissy Hind in Ohio, and they knew each other. And it once was finally revealed to me that his whole concept was that he was somewhere traveling in Europe and he was on some kind of boat and the boat was kind of going tipping one way and then the other and people were sort of in his mind the way that they were sort of grappling with that was this sort of looked like they were doing this sort of yeah. Egyptian tomb paintings gestures I, I probably have the story all wrong but that's what my memory is telling me and it was an eccentric and left center choice but we thought yeah. What the hell? Let's try it. Yeah. So we were there at the studio and we created the little shaker track and the, it was very outside the box for us, but I just had so much fun singing that song. So much fun. We all sort of were going in and singing different bits and David Kahn was like, hey, you try that bit, you try that bit. And then I got the last verses on it. And I remember thinking that I didn't nail the walk like an Egyptian. You know, that part, I'm probably not in the same key as the record, but I said to David, oh, I got to repeat how I did that. And he goes, no way. <laughs> I will not let you re-sing it the way you did it. Flaws, whatever flaws you're imagining, it is yeah. good. And so yeah. looking back, because you can kind of hear like my lips parting between the first walk like an Egyptian and the second one. Like I, it was very close on the mic. He wanted me to get really close. Yeah. You know how it is in the studio to get it. Like you yeah, really yeah, feel yeah, yeah. the the texture of the voice when you're close. 
So I'm really grateful that he insisted I not fix whatever I thought I had blown or didn't do well enough because the charm of it, the charm of it now I can look back at 30 years later and go, that's cool. It's weird if you have too much control as a singer, you know, over the final thing, you know, because I mean, I've really overdone it singing very probably ruined a track you know because just because you tried to perfect it yeah. and really the imp- the imperfections i've learned over the years that the imp- imperfections are the things that really kind of make a difference really you know they they separate the average to the very interesting you know? I, I i couldn't agree more tim like i i think back on that too and i'm because we were dealing not with the digital things that people have at their fingertips now yeah. engineers have to perfect everything. You know, I I agree with you. I mean, you look at some of the great vocal performances. I mean, just take Mick Jagger, for example. Like, if you're sitting around, like, analyzing the tuning (laughs) on any particular word, you know, it's not about that. It's about the expression of what the story that lives within that song is. Like, it's the passion. attitude. It's the attitude. It's everything. And so... The older I get, the more I'm aware of those imperfections are actually what are the most human. You know, it's yeah. the humanness yeah. of it. And and why yeah. do we listen to music? Why do we love music? Why does it matter? Because it connects us all. And we're all imperfect. It's all about the rough edges, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's where yeah. the story gets yummy. You know, that's where the that's where the story <laughs> lives. It's so relatable. Yeah. When there's natural mistakes human like you said yeah what people won't be able to see on this radio show is the fact that you just did a uh, walk like an egyptian kind of arm gesture yeah. uh, which which you know i think i'm going to enjoy that you know. <laughs> good i'm glad <laughs> let's hear that classic walk like an egyptian Track number four on Different Light, Walk Like an Egyptian. It's Tim Burgess here with Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles for a listening party. We're going to move on to track number five. It's called Standing in the yeah. Hallway. On my notes, I just thought to myself, well, there's got to be a time to introduce the idea of a Rickenbacker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, my friend um, Martin Kelly, who I think you know, yeah, just put out a book oh yes he you know de- dedicated a lot of time yes uh, to writing a book about, about yes, now I put it and, in, yes. and I went, I, yeah yeah and I went to his exhibition in London it was sometime last year and you know you were you were there and what I'm trying to get to is like when did you realize that the Rickenbacker was for you I mean you've, you've had guitars made for you you know signature yeah guitars but you know at the beginning you know I mean was it an expensive guitar was it something that you really just couldn't get your eyes off was it um the sound that obviously you would have heard through the birds uh what you know what what was it you know I mean well it was for certainly the sound like it took it to ride or you know the first time you hear a Rick and of course Bonker, yeah of course know, I always go, forget that what, I was what what is that sound it, it was like a magical spell it would cast over yeah. me the jingle jangle. And then later, as I explored music in my teens and, and in my 20s um, in college, you know, I began to realize that the Rickenbacker had a unique sound. It has a unique sound, um, not just the 12 string ones, but there's a kind of a bright shimmer baked into the guitar. I don't know how they do it. I don't know why they sound like that, but they, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a difference between a Les Paul, for example, or a, sure. or, or a Telecaster or Stratocaster and a Rickenbacker. And mm-hmm. there was something kind of chimey and delicate and fairy dust-like that, that the Rickenbacker just, the, the ringing, the bell-like quality. It's just like when I hear church bells, it does something. I immediately have kind of an emotional reaction to it. So the Rickenbacker and me became fast friends immediately (laughs) and when i was with david roback back in our early iteration of what we we called ourselves the unconscious the band that never was but it informed so much he was very interested in 
uh, teaching himself to play guitar. So early on, I just was on the hunt for Rickenbackers yeah. and I began to sort of collect them a little bit. And later Rickenbacker invited me to do a signature model like Tom Petty and yeah, other so people great. who are so I revere. And, and you know, it just always, that chiming sound always, it's just so beautiful to me. I don't know why my ear picks up on it. It's like bells chiming. There's something about it in music that I'm just respond to. So all these many years, it's been my Rickenbacker that I go to for electric guitar. Rickenbacker does have that additional magic, I think, that, you know, when you hit the guitar string, you know, it sort of chimes in a beautiful way that's that's helpful to get a melody, for me, yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, that's know. so cool to know, yeah. That's what it does for me, too. It excites me, and it has beauty. That ringing tone is, is a thing of beauty, I think. Sticking with the song, Standing in the Hallway. yeah. It's like, you know, uh, Bangles' shared, shared vocal duties. Yeah, so I think the initial yeah. song was the Debbie idea. And then I think in many cases, Vicky and I would jump in and, and collaborate. We were very collaborative in the writing. Yeah. But she was sort of the lead voice generally was often, I would say, the person who had the initial idea, the initial spark. And then we'd sit, yeah. sit with Makes the guitars. Sense. Yeah, so that would have been, um, Standing in the Hallway, would have been Debbie's initial concept for that song, for sure. Okay, this is Standing in the Hallway on Tim's Listening Party. That song's called Standing in the Hallway. Susanna, so the next song is track number six. Yeah. And it's called Return Post. Yeah. And I, I, I like the idea of this because it reminds me of being an early adult and stuff not getting back to you because you move on and, and you yeah. don't really leave forwarding addresses and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and you kind of like use that to your advantage. Um, <laughs> can, <laughs> can you uh, tell me a little bit about this? Well, this was one that I, I vividly remember like Vicky and I wrote together and um, she was sort of the lead conceptualizer of it and I just you know was the collaborator with her on an idea that she had and it was very mm -hmm. much pre-internet so we're talking about stamps on envelopes <laughs> sending yeah, letters yeah, yeah. but the idea of you know Vicky used to write a lot about sort of unrequited love don't we all write about unrequited yeah. love but the idea <laughs> of like sending out your message of love and waiting for the return and do you get it or do you not that's the conflict there that's the predicament um yes. every every good story has a predicament for the protagonist but i just remember that it was so fun vicky and i really got into sort of like team a kind of duo writing thing quite often and and that was always um fun because we, it wasn't like one of us wrote the music and one wrote the lyrics. We would always chime in and, and help each other craft the song in various yeah. ways. It was bouncing around because I have written a lot with Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly, who I wrote In Your Room and Eternal Flame with. And in the case of Billy and Tom, it was really interesting after working with the Bangles and very mm -hmm. much working with Vic, Vicky. I mean, we wrote Hero Takes a Fall together, loads of songs together. But with Billy and Tom, they, they had discrete writing duties. Like, he would write lyrics first, which was never yeah. intuitive to me. I always yeah. heard melodies, or I would always yeah. think I could feel the swirl of what the emotion would be. And it was just trying to find a way to express it. But I just didn't think to write the lyrics first. So with Vicky and I, what I loved about our writing relationship was just sitting there and both of us working on both music and lyrics. It was fun. I like the idea of some decent chords and then a melody and then melodies kind of stick in your head and then the lyrics come Yeah. for me like that. Yeah, that's yeah. how it always was for me. That's why it was so interesting to work with Billy because he was more like creating like a poem or something. And then we... Yeah, like Dylan yeah. or something. You so know, like tight, tight, tight writer and then just a couple of chords yeah. and just getting your message across. So you know. does Dylan do it that way too, do you know? Is that what... Did he I tend to do... I don't know for sure, but I mean, I, I just watching like the D.A. Pennebaker oh, yeah. like movies, you know, yeah. where, where he's sitting in his hotel room just like writing Chams of Freedom. The birds did a great 
melodic version of that, but oh, like yeah. his is just more more of a kind of poem. Yeah, really, I yeah. suppose with with a couple of chords. Love both versions. Yeah, me too, and and it all works, doesn't it? Yeah. This next song is called Return Post. Moving on to track seven, If She Knew What She Wants. Well, this song is very special to me. There was a songwriter, or is a songwriter, Jules Shear, who writes absolutely beautiful music. And we ended up getting to know Jules very well. And Vicky and I actually co-wrote a song that was in the Goonies movie. That was a big 80s <laughs> yeah. movie. Oh, yeah. I'm just remembering that just now. If She Knew What She Wants is a gorgeous melody. I mean, we really just... You know, we covered his song. We were so happy in the world of covering songs we love because that's kind of where we began before we really started writing. It was all about yeah. kind of getting our sound. And it was quintessentially bangles, I think, because we had so many singers in the band. Every every member of the band also wrote and sang. Like the Beatles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Beatles were our, our childhood inspiration. And so we carried that kind of idea you know, what is the structure of this band? How are we going to work it? In our case, the, you know, everybody sang. So on If She Knew What She Wants, I got to sing the lead on that one. And I'm very grateful for that because it's such a beautiful song. And I loved it so much and still do yeah, and still love to sing it. But it really was great to have the call and response vocals. And it's just a very interesting song. I don't know. There's something like unexpected in the way there's multiple bridges in it. Like it doesn't follow yeah, yeah. A, a real standard songwriting convention. And that's what makes it obviously unique that it doesn't follow. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny when you, when you try, you know, you try and write a song and you think, okay, we'll do the verse, you know, maybe have an intro and then chorus and a yeah. repeat it a couple of times. You know, I remember us having like a middle 18 or something and it's like yeah middle middle 23 yeah, or something there and, was this... and 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 and, and they're, they're the things that kind of like really get you excited aren't they i know they? there's like two bridges and this other weird some have a style that part like i just love singing that part because it's like wait where did we just go <laughs> we just went yeah yeah we exactly. took a full left turn here you just don't expect it but his melody is so fun to sing it's so like soaring there's so much and there's yeah. so much emotion in it and storytelling i don't know i just so grateful to jules for that i'll never stop singing that song Bangles with If She Knew What She Wants on Absolute Radio. Tim Burgess here having a listen party with Susanna Hoffs about the Bangles album, Different Light. Let It Go. Oh, Let It Go. Okay, so this was an all band. <laughs> this was a kind of a community effort. All four of us wrote it. It felt like, you know how when you're in a band, there's so much love, but you know, you can't have a band with love but not have friction as well. It's yeah, like families, it's like growing up with yeah, siblings, yeah, yeah. you're bound to have scraps with them or disagreements. Yeah. <laughs> we felt like it was the last song we wrote, maybe as an afterthought. I have a memory of being in the studio when we recorded the album and writing that song like we need a song that's written by all of us. And it was very yeah. much mamas and mamas <laughs> going off the mamas yeah. and papas idea but all girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was Mamas and yeah. Mamas voices. And it was as cathartic to write and record as one would expect, knowing that as a band, just the natural tensions that that exist between trying to have a family that all get along perfectly yeah. and all agree on everything. I mean, that's very difficult. Yeah. 
It was very, yeah. like, it was very cathartic for us to write and record that song. I, I really enjoyed that. Did he that. say that this was happen- this, this happened towards the end of the album? Yeah, my memory is yeah, that we yeah. did it yeah. kind of as an afterthought. That's interesting because, um, you know, when you go into making an album, you've got, you've got some songs and then you've got some ideas and, and it starts going well. And there's an arc of recording an album, isn't there? Yeah. And at the end of it, every, everyone, everyone is like so jumpy at the end, you know? Yeah. So this was sort of the bow to wrap up the project, as I remember, was writing and recording Let It Go and having just four voices all finding harmonies and sometimes unison and yeah. It was really cathartic. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a good time to mention that idea of harmonies. I mean, I, I guess it was, you know, an, an influence. But I mean, you know, I mean, when you were playing live, you know, how, how easy was it in the in the early days to get the harmonies right? You know, it was interestingly intuitive for us because we grew up yeah. on the Beatles records. So Paul and John were always in harmony or often in harmony. I always gravitated to the Paul, to the high parts. Naturally, right. I, I would tend towards the yeah. high parts. Yeah, falsetto. Yeah, right, like no. either falsetto Almost, or belting the yeah. high part. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, <laughs> singing out, you know, mamas and papas singing style, out. you know. Um, yeah, but, well, but, I mean, unbe- unbeatable, really, in, in many ways. <laughs> That's so nice. But yeah, no, I loved, I gravitated. We all sort of gravitated to where our voices naturally landed and what, Yes, yeah, so it was quite intuitive and we could just find it. It was very interesting, but also David Kahn was a very good arranger. So he got really, really excited about keeping the harmonies on, uh, particularly on the different light record. And I recall yeah. us standing around one mic, very old school, and just kind of getting our balance and being kind of conducted in a sense by David yeah. and and he yeah. would because he was such an excellent arranger he would you know oftentimes suggest a thing or two but much of it was our own intuitive sense of where our voice would fit into the four part harmony in many cases three and four part harmonies it's a great thing doing that in the studio isn't it and it's like the, the loudest voice has to stand further back yeah. oh, and yeah. the one with the quietest yeah, yeah. quietest voice you know very close and it's but it's a real kind of it's a real atmosphere that i feel very fortunate to be you know able to have done yeah me too i remember when we sang on tom petty's record waiting for tonight by the end of it, uh-huh. talking about being close or being far away, I was like <laughs> way across the room because I was belting out. My part was like a belting out high harmony. And no matter what we did, they had to keep moving me back because I was too loud or something like that. But I totally remember that where someone doing a really low part would have to be really close on the mic. I mean, yeah. mic work as, as a thing, as yeah. a singer, is well. a, it's an actual thing. You know, it really people is. don't know that because they listen to the music and they're not in the room when it's being recorded. So it is very interesting if you want to do something very textured, you get really close on the mic if it's yeah. a low part to get all the resonance. And if you're belting, yeah. you could just like totally overdrive a mic and it sounds like crap because you've just <laughs> blo- over compressed it. Let's hear it. Let it go on Tim's listening. Place. Let it go on Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. Susanna, when did you first hear about Alex Chilton? Wow, well, that was that was all part of the whole Paisley Underground obsession. So Big Star wasn't something that every kid um, who listened to AM radio would have discovered. You had to be no. a record nerd, you know, in the best possible way. You had to be, yeah, yeah, be yeah. a collector. And, and so all of a sudden in the 80s, I was finding out through David Roebuck, other people who were in the know about such things, I discovered Big Star. And whoa, that was like an insane revelation. Here's a band that, you know, we knew Alex Chilton had sung these songs when he was a kid that were hits on the radio, but we didn't know that he went on to be in this band called Big Star. And 
you know, I've really gotten to know Jody Stevens, the drummer, and oh. over over the years, and I did uh, um, done some concerts with them and sung various Big Star songs. But David Robick and I were just like so in love with Big Star, and so when we were just thinking about songs for the album, the notion of September Girls came up. In later years, when Michael Steele kind of left the band, I, I sang lead on September Girls. She recorded the lead on the album, so that's what you yeah. hear on Different Light. But it's one of my all-time favorite songs. It really is. Yes, yeah, such an inspired, such an inspired song to do for the record. I mean, it, it fits in with everything that the Bangles were about. Yeah. But you would have to be a searcher to find that song. Absolutely, you know? and just those opening, jangling chords that descend the opening everything about that song i love i just love the it the speed of it as well uh, the speed of it it's just like brilliant it, you know? yeah the speed the harmonies the lyrics the emotion yeah, the, lyrics. the emotion like singing it is compelling in all ways in my opinion i just love that song i'm never tired of singing it and the shiny guitars yeah the jangly i in fact <laughs> i was just on my book tour there was some people who were there because you know they liked the music that i'd done as well and Somebody mentioned yeah. September Girls. So I've been bringing my guitar, my acoustic guitar on oh, tour. And so right. I just was like, oh, I haven't played. When's the last time I played September Girls? I couldn't even remember, but I just, you know how the automatic pilot comes in when you, yeah, yeah, yeah. all yeah, of yeah, a yeah. sudden I was, bam, 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 bam. I was doing the riff. <laughs> so I just sang a little bit of it. It was so fun. I, I definitely want to put that one back in if anybody wants to hear it on my book tours. <laughs> How's the book tour going? It's amazing because I've been able to talk about The Labor of Love, which was writing this novel. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, people were like, bring your guitar. And I'm like, okay. And the fact that I, you know, so used to playing with other people, but the book was a total solo venture. And now being able to get over my shyness to just go with yeah. my guitar, like I realized, yeah. you know, okay, so I'm not like able to pull out some fancy lead or start soloing, but I can get by just me and the guitar. And I just took me many years to overcome my anxiety about that. But now I kind of love it I, and I'm just embracing it as a way to perform live. How many places have you been to and how much more are you going to do? Well, I've been to... With the, with the book. I've been um, on in New York, New Jersey, Chicago. I'm going to the UK. I'm going to perform yeah. at the Kite Festival, which is a yeah, book and great. music tour. That's June 11th for people in the UK. As long as I can do book events and bring my guitar, I'm there. It's been really, really fun. What a life. Yeah. Did you uh, always want to write a book? It had been a lifelong dream, and I thought, "Wow, yeah, like like starting a band, like everything that has ever somehow magically worked out when I really set my mind to something, and I don't wait around. Yeah. I never took a course. I don't read music. Uh -huh. I just self-taught on the guitar, learning from friends, sharing what chord is that on that song, that kind of way, just on the schoolyard. Just I've just learned by listening to a lot of musics, yeah singing along to records, Joni Mitchell records, Linda Ronstadt yeah. records, teaching myself to sing, same with the guitar, every once in a while asking someone, what's that chord? <laughs> Show me how to play it. <laughs> same with the book. I've been a reader my whole life. I'm always watching movies. I love disappearing into fiction, into a story, and kind of getting out of my own ruminations. It's my go-to, it's my drug. It's safe, yeah. you know? <laughs> It makes life more interesting and joyful, and it's how we connect as human beings. So it doesn't stop with music for me. It's in books, it's in films. It's Yeah. I yeah, just love, I love a story. Here's track number nine on Different Light, September Girls. Bangles with September Girls on Tim's Listening Party on Absolute Radio. I'm Tim Burgess and I'm delighted to be joined by Susanna Hoffs going through the band's 1986 album, Different Light. Angels Don't Fall in Love. Oh, yeah. This was a movie. There was a, a The Trouble with Angels. And you should find that on your Spotify because the opening uh, music score for that 
The Trouble with Angels is one of the greatest pieces of music ever written for a film, in my opinion. Just throwing that out there for anybody who wants to check it out. But Vicky and I, <laughs> as kids, were so obsessed with this movie, The Trouble with Angels, which is basically set in a convent school. Yeah. They're like a pair of best friends who are in this boarding school, surrounded by nuns, and they are just troublemakers. And it's an interesting thing that I've noted in my older age. I just have such an affection for these kinds of movies from the 60s, partly because I watched them as a girl and, and found yeah. them very compelling, you know. But also just there's something spiritual, even if you're not, in quotes, practicing a particular religion. There was just something about these troublemaking girls in this convent school finding out these life lessons in an unexpected way. And Vicky and I had both, even though Vicky went to Catholic school, she and yeah. I didn't. I was, you know, right. ra raised by, you know, beatniks that we just had fun writing this song. It was really fun to play live. It sounds like a classic combination, beatnik and Catholic. Yeah, you know? she was she was a Catholic school girl <laughs> and I was I was a beatnik. Yeah. But yet yeah. we both bonded over the trouble with angels. So that was that one. Okay, let's hear Angels Don't Fall in Love. Track number 10 from Different Light, that was Angels Don't Fall In Love. You know, how does it feel, you know, your legacy of an all-girl group, 80s? I mean, it, there wasn't that many other... Well, you know, the, besides the Go-Go's. Yeah. What was it like? You know, it was quite wonderful because we felt like very banded together. We were a band and we yeah. felt that bond. And, you know, the Go-Go's had been a big inspiration for me. I used to draw my own flyers and then go to the Xerox place and leave them at record stores. And, and I did bring them to the to the Whiskey A Go-Go when the Go-Go's were playing there. And I found them very, I liked the idea having, having tried to be in a band with David. And I realized the yeah. sort of ABBA, the ABBA potential for, um, you know, being coupled up with somebody and trying to make it work. So... The Go-Go's were an inspiration. And, you know, I grew up singing along to Supreme's records. I, the sound of female yeah. voices in harmony and in concert with each other it was compelling to me. So, yeah, I mean, I loved being in an all-girl band. There was something very um, sassy about it. <laughs> yeah, we get yeah, to, we mean, get to uh, rock and roll, too, don't we? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was only into girl groups for, for the longest time. You know, yeah. Shangri-Las and, oh, and yeah. Marvelettes and... Supremes, you know, I mean, there's just something otherworldly that I don't understand. But yeah, I get, I, a really, same. I get a really great message um, from all girl groups, you know. I do too. I mean, the Supremes were, and, and the Ronettes. Yeah, Ronettes. Ronettes. Oh my God. And I sang with, yeah. with Ronnie Spector. We had a great Did I think, you? Yeah, oh my, on the, I, my mom made a movie in the 80s. It's the most 80s ish low budget movie called The All Nighter. But um, <laughs> yeah. Ronnie and I sang a song that Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly had written. I think it's called oh, wow. Dangerous. She mm -hmm. was so great singing with her. She was just an extraordinary woman and singer. And her voice was so magical. Like these were icons that I studied, you know. That, that song Try Some, Buy Some, it's just one of the most insane records that I've ever heard. You know, it's just like obviously mega production, exceptional. She was just a wonderful person. She had a very difficult journey through her life yeah. with Phil Spector and so on but there's certain voices that like Ronnie Spector's voice you hear it and you know in one second who's singing like it is so yeah. iconic and so beautiful and so distinct you know yeah. so that was Ronnie Spector you're listening to Tim's Listening Party and this song is called Following and you say I'm haunting you Why do you call me? Why do you look for me? And why do your eyes follow me the way they do? I 
The Bangles with Following, the penultimate track from their second album, Different Light. We're nearly at the end of the album and the end of another listening party, but before then, Susanna, can you tell me about Not Like You? So Not Like You, that was one that Debbie had started and then Debbie and I worked on together. And I'm guessing David Kahn heard it and then had an idea for it and worked on another part of it. But it had an interesting rhythm to it. Debbie, being a drummer, always had... A really cool sense, obviously, of rhythm and meter and time. I think it has sort of like a waltz rhythm to it. But that was really fun to sing. I remember, again, on all Bangles records, but particularly on Different Light, the way that we approached the harmonies was such a big factor in the sound of the of the record. We didn't want to just do rote harmonies. Everything was very crafted. And David, yeah. David is yeah. a really extraordinary uh, arranger so we had this great blessing of him you know helping us with those and inspiring us to try really outside of the box harmonies i mean it totally worked and and the album was like such a massive success and i wanted to know how did you decide that this was going to be the the last track well you must go through this on your records too sometimes you just have to move things around and um, it was pre-digital So Uh I think we would just, our engineers would have to cobble together running orders. And you kind of know, even this this space between how many seconds you give between songs is is something, the in-between silence on a record. I mean, not everybody listens now to an album. I mean, I'm sure you have vinyl, Tim, right? I I do. I do. First of all, vinyl has a warmer, even if it's scratchy or it... It's slightly warped or anything. There's something about the quality of vinyl that is undeniable. You can't really recreate it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. But I think we probably just tested out orders and sometimes it was keys, tempos. Because the band had four singers in it, we wanted to kind of create balances. Not too many songs, you know. It was quite tricky, I would guess. It's been a long time, but yeah, I think it works. I agree. Thank you. It's uh, a lot about feeling, I think, isn't it, as well? Uh, you know, it's just the way that the album feels and, you know, how it's weighted. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I guess, as a, you know, I suppose when, when you were only thinking about records, you'd have two closers, wouldn't you? You'd have side one, the end of side one. and you know, That's you know, but, right. And I guess, like, now it's just more, I suppose, just tracks, really, yeah. assembled. But, I mean, most musicians I talk to think about the arc of an album and, you know, the importance of you know, track A and is there an instrumental on the album or like you were saying, the balance of the vocals and the, the singers and yeah, and all that. But it's feeling, I suppose. Yeah. That's the way I would, uh, I would describe it. But anyway, it's not about me, it's about you. Um, <laughs> I relate. <laughs> Susanna Hoffs. <laughs> Susanna Hoffs. It was an absolute pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure communing with you, Tim. And I'm so grateful that you <laughs> created this a way for musicians to share stories and the histories of different things in the process of making these albums and writing and and all of it. So from one music lover to another, I am most grateful to you. It's so great to hear your enthusiasm about brilliant music. Thank you. As well as as writing brilliant music (laughs) and books. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Let's hear the final track on Different Light. Not like you. That was Bangles, Not Like You, concluding another listening party on Absolute Radio. Thanks to Susanna Hoffs for taking me through Different Light, as well as listening to that amazing album. Be sure to check out Susanna's new book, This Bird Has Flown. As always, I like to finish every listening party by letting you know what else I've been listening to this past week. This week I've been listening to Johnny Marr. We're playing a show together in um, a couple of months. I've been listening to Shirley Collins um, quite a lot. She's got a new album coming out and I'm doing a listening party for her on Twitter. A new band called The Dream Machine, who I really like. And also Dusty Springfield. 
Yeah, I know it was a birthday last week. So, yeah, I was listening to Dusty in Memphis. The show might be over, but feel free to tweet me at Tim underscore Burgess using the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party. Every song in this episode of my listening party was taken from the Bangles album Different Light. All tracks were written by the Bangles unless otherwise stated. The album was released on Columbia. I'm Tim Burgess and thank you for listening. I'll see you next time for another listening party. Absolute Radio. Telling the story behind another iconic album with Tim Burgess. Get involved using the hashtag Tim's Twitter listening party.